there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. You've seen those balloon artists and clowns who blow up these long, thin balloons and then they twist them around, you know, into the animals and different shapes. And they make things like hats for people. Have you seen that? That's what they make. Well, I got the idea, like, you could make a whole man out of that. Some balloon artists could take all those things and put them together and make a whole man. They could make a statue. They could make anything they wanted. You know, if they had enough balloons and enough energy, people do these sandcastle things. If you've seen the sandcastles, like, some of them are amazing just astounding. People spend days and weeks on them. So I was thinking about that. Uh, so I was thinking about balloon men. Uh, so that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about balloon men. And the reason is because I say, ah, you're full of balloon juice. Well, and people go, what, is, what does that mean? What, what, what does that mean, full of balloon juice? Well, and I say, okay, well, what do you use to blow up a balloon? And it's like, well, you breathe. Well, we're, what, is that, what is that air that comes out of you? Well, it's hot air. So the idea is that if you're full of balloon juice, then you're full of hot air. Now, most people claiming to be in the work are full of it. What I mean is most people who claim that they're working are really full of hot air. They're just blowing hot air. They're not really working, they're just blowing hot air. They get trapped on the surface of this work and then they end up twisting themselves around like these long balloons. They end up twisting themselves around to look just right. So it makes them kind of like balloon men. They're not real people. They're just these people who are full of hot air, and it's all pretense. It's all twisting around to position, to get in the right position, and to do this, and to look that way. And, and it's the pretense of life. It's what, the, it's what happens when the work falls, when the work ideas or the esoteric ideas fall on false personality, and they never get in any deeper. They're not allowed any deeper. The false personality just keeps them there in the intellectual center, and the intellectual center then feeds the ego off of that feeds the false personality, feeds the pride off of that, pride and vanity dying on that, and they, yeah, we know now. I think it was really interesting, Morris Nichols said, figures mean nothing, diagrams mean nothing, unless you understand the principle. Well, balloon men don't understand the principle. That's what happens. And the reason he said this to one of his work groups, figures mean nothing, diagrams mean nothing, is because people were misunderstanding figures and diagrams. We had a guy in our group once who he was just fascinated with the Enneagram, absolutely fascinated with it. You know, he had all the numbers down. He was one of these mathematician guys, you know, had all the numbers down. He'd go backwards, forwards, across, and this and that. He just had it all done because the numbers was where he was comfortable. He had no relationships with human beings, but he had great relationships with numbers. And so rather than take the work and use it in relationships where it's supposed to be used, he would take it and just stay in the diagrams and, and the figures the designs and this and that, and he would just live there. And he got more and more puffed up, more and more puffed up until he was an expert on the work, and then he was in a position to then teach the teacher because he knew the diagrams and the figures by heart. And he could just, without looking at a reference card or anything, for me, I don't, my, I don't do numbers. So for me, it's like, I understand the principles. I don't care really about the diagrams because I can make my own diagrams. 
I don't care about the figures because I can come up with my own figures. I don't care about the metaphors or the parables because I can make up my own parables because I understand the principles. That's the way the work is supposed to work, and that's how it comes to us. It doesn't come to us in figures and diagrams. It comes to us as the principle, and the figures and the diagrams then help us to relate to the principle so that we can dig into it, and that's all it is. But unfortunately, people get it turned around. So essentially, like I said to you the other day, you're living life backwards. You're living life have-do-be. The work says turn that around to be-do-have. So that if you're being something, then you'll do what that being does. And then you'll have what that being has. But we don't like it that way. We turn it the other way and we think, well, if I can just get this, then I can do that with it and then I'll be this. And that's backwards. It doesn't work that way. It's kind of like the tail wagging the dog. But it's a very difficult principle for people to get and to really put into practice. And the reason is because there's this huge change. There's this huge change of being that has to occur in us in order to do that. But it's so easy just to memorize a few diagrams and a few figures. That's easy. Anyone can do that. Well, almost anyone can do that. And so we find ourselves really kind of blowing up these diagrams and these figures and twisting them around and putting them on like hats or like suits of clothes and we end up adding more to the false personality instead of taking things away from the false personality as this work is designed to do. It's designed to make the false personality passive and to make your essential self active so that you can start to turn it around from have, do, be to be, do, have. The attachment to diagrams, figures and drawings is an intellectual pitfall for a lot of people. It's not just the one person that I mentioned. There are, in fact, most people will, especially with the work. Like I think you shared podcast in Australia with a yoga teacher. And he said, oh, that's, that's, that's too cerebral for me. That's too cerebral for me. Right. Some people won't, but most people will take it intellectually because the work attracts kind of intellectual kind of people. The work attracts them. It doesn't attract yoga teachers. Yoga teachers are attracted by something that's for the moving center, something that's for the feelings. They like feel good. Oh, I just like the bliss and yada, yada, yada. What they're really centered in, you would think mainly in the, in the moving center, but it's not always. Sometimes they're in the feeling center, the emotional center. And of course, it's the negative part of the emotional center because the only thing they're interested in is bliss. And the only reason they're interested in bliss is because they don't have any. Because they're floating in a sea of negative emotions. So they, they're swimming in a sea of negative emotions. They find this raft of bliss and they jump on that for a breather. And then they have to do yoga in order to stay on that raft. And so when you introduce them to something else, no, no, no. They're, they instantly, no, they don't want to do that. And that just shows you right there. That's a negative emotion. So why say that there's this huge attachment, intellectual pitfall for many people is because there are many people who do this. Paul said in one of his letters to the Corinthians, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And so again, we're at the same thing. If you're doing it from the have, do, be, you get all this knowledge. You get all this outer stuff. And it looks like you are that. It looks like you're being that. This is why advertising works so well. If you can buy a Bentley, well, then you are rich. If you can buy this big you know, house or this great suit, or if you can have this and have that, then you look like you are something that you're not. And people think, well, yeah, but, but if you can buy a Bentley, then you are rich. Not necessarily. If you can buy a Bentley, all it means is you can talk somebody into giving you a loan. So it's not necessarily that you are rich. I mean, you could lease a Bentley, you could borrow a Bentley, you know, it's not that way. But people are so attached to the outside that they think it is that way. And when they buy into it, it makes it easier for us to buy into it because then we can impress them. 
and that feeds the false personality and feeds all the wrong part of ourselves. So figures and diagrams are the tools, not badges and medals. They're not things to put on to show what we've accomplished. The, the figures and the, and the diagrams are tools to help us get deeper, to help us get inside of ourselves. And they're used in all the wrong way by being hung on the outside as if they were some kind of badge of courage or badge of merit. And it's all used in the pharisaical way and it doesn't work. We're told not to pay so much attention to the words, to the figures and the diagrams, but rather try to catch the meaning behind them. In other words, look for the principles. Now, catching the meaning is easier if you look for the principle, but most people don't. They get so enamored with the shininess or the sparkliness of the outside thing. Oh, look at that diagram. And Gurdjieff said that two men come together. The one who understands the diagram is the one who has the greater understanding, you know, the one who can blah, blah, blah. And so people get into this contest of, well, I understand more than you. Well, I know more than you, which, of course, is the exact, again, the exact opposite. Esoteric teachings say very clearly, whoever would be greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. And that's not being the servant of all. That's lifting yourself up above everybody else and wanting everyone else to serve you. Again, the exact opposite. Have, do, be, rather than be, do, have. When you catch the principle behind the words, behind the diagrams, behind the figures, it takes you higher. And what it does is it gives you a better perspective. And that way, principle helps understanding. You can generate the force of understanding in yourself a lot easier if you are based in the principle. Because then the principle becomes like the foundation. It's the thing you're standing on so that you can do from that principle. But if you're out here trying to get to the principle, then you're doing from out here. You're standing on something else. You're standing on what's not principle, trying to get to the principle. And what happens is most people don't do it because the imagination satisfies every center. They end up imagining that since they've got the figures and the words down and the diagrams down, that they've got something, that they've got the principle, when in fact they haven't at all. People aren't going to like this, but when people start liking what I say, I'm going to stop saying this because it will mean that I'm no longer useful. It will mean that I'm no longer telling the truth. When people start liking what other people say, then you'll have a lot of followers. When you have a lot of followers, my sense is that you're not telling the hard truth. You're not giving out the strong medicine. You've mixed a lot of sugar in with it. That's okay. I mix sugar in with this. Balloon man. You know, it's obviously an image that has nothing really whatever to do with the work. But I'm using it to capture, to catch the mind, the intellect, and to try and lure it over here so that I can slide some of the principles in. And if I can only get one principle in amidst all this, then that's fine with me. But there's a certain point where it becomes all sugar and there's so little medicine in it, doesn't do anything at all, and the side effects of the sugar are worse. So you have to balance it. You've got to be a good chemist, as it were, when it comes to this. And if I do that or not, I don't know. But I hope so. I hope that I do. The universe supplies us with a highly organized physical body, which is really a moving miracle whose complexity science and medicine is still trying to fathom. I heard something the other day. They were saying something about the body, and it was like just incredible. It was like science fiction. And the scientists were now moving in a realm where the metaphysicians have moved for thousands of years, and now the scientists are catching up. And they're now saying, well, it's this, and it's this, and it's that. What the esoteric teachings have been saying for thousands of years, now even the scientists are catching up to it. So the only people who are behind in this are the people in the world. The only people who aren't actually getting this done are the people in the world. 
So we start off with this body. Even as infants, our bodies work brilliantly. An infant doesn't have to be trained how to digest food. An infant doesn't have to be trained how to eliminate food, how to breathe, how to circulate blood, how to beat a heart, how to make a brain work. An infant doesn't have to do any of that. It's all provided by the universe. It's all provided by the universe, and bam, it's full-blown right there. Of course, we grow, and we develop other skills, but we are born with these instincts that keep us alive. So the universe provides that for us. As we grow, though, we're then surrounded by something, and this something is another body. This other body, called the second body, the first body is a physical body. The second body is this other body that we're surrounded by, and it's acquired as we move through life. And how we acquire it is we start to imitate the sleeping people around us, and that's called personality. That body is called personality in the work. It's also called our psychology, but it's a little more than just our psychology. Compared with the physical body, it's a disorganized chaos. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. But the psychological body, our personality, contains many contradictory eyes over which we should have control, but actually we don't. We say we want to do this. We'll know better and act worse. We say we want to do this, but then we can't do it. Or like Paul said, that a wretched man that I am, the thing that I want to do, I don't do, and the thing that I don't want to do, that thing I do. He says, who will save me from this body? So he sees it as this actual body that it's doing what it does, and it's in chaos, and he has no control over it. The thing that I want to do, I don't do. The thing that I don't want to do, I do. So this body is running away with me. And so you hear this, and you think, yes, yes, but I'm not like that. And the work says, no, no, you are like that. That's exactly how you are. And if you will do what we tell you to do, which is observe in this way, you will see that you actually are like that. And you within the light of consciousness falling on that dark part of yourself will begin to heal you, will begin to fix you, will begin to cleanse you, will begin to change your being, will begin to transform you. That is what this work is about. Not figures and diagrams and words and parables and metaphors. It's not about that. Although they're fascinating and they're very entertaining. If they don't go any further than that, then they do nothing for us except add to this second body, which is the personality and all these contradictory eyes. Life doesn't give us a controlling eye that can organize the second body. That's a luxury we don't get. Yes, we can beat our hearts and our brains work and our, and our, and, you know, our lungs work and our, everything works. We can digest food. What a miracle. Take food and air and make out of that or the foods, the food groups, which is air and water and food, the nourishment we take in, and impressions, and build a physical body, build flesh and bones and blood and tissue cells. That is a miracle that we can do that. And we do it without ever thinking about it. We do it because the universe has organized that first body for us. But the second body, we don't get that. This is why the work says we are born unfinished. And we have to then take over and develop that. So we've got to get a controlling eye in this second body that can start to deal with all these many contradictory eyes over which we could have control if we had a controlling eye that could organize the second body. Now, esoteric teaching plus work on yourself make the possibility of an organized second body. That organized second body will be distinctly different and apart from the physical body. So the physical body is organized, but it's organized in one way. The psychological body has to be organized in another way. And these esoteric teachings basically tell us how that can happen. The principle is, as I said, that we are unfinished. So no psychological body of which we may speak due to the chaos of eyes and the internal war which results. 
because of the chaos of eyes. We, as we are, have no psychological body that we can really say, well, yes, this is a psychological body. What we can say instead is we've got this chaos, this mob of eyes that are all struggling for dominance in this way or in that way. Understanding the principle is getting behind the words, behind the diagrams, behind the figures, giving us greater separation from the first body, the physical body. Well, why would we need separation from the first body, the physical body? If it's organized, why would we need separation from it? We'll have more on this later. Esoteric teachings use different words, figures, different diagrams for the four bodies that the work discusses. The work says, Essentially, we have four bodies. It could say we had eight, it could say we had 28, it could say we had 16, it could say we have three. It doesn't matter what it says because we don't understand it anyway. For us, we just want to see the figures, the diagrams. Oh, just show me this. Well, yeah, how's that work? I want to learn more. I get this all the time. Well, tell me everything you know about this. Well, I want to learn about that. I want this. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. And unfortunately, that really doesn't work so well for people. Let's look at some of the Eastern teachings that map this whole body thing in a different way. Of course, anyone in the work for any amount of time is familiar with the teaching of the carriage being the body, the horse being the feelings and the desires, the driver being the mind, and the master being the consciousness or the will, a real I, as it were. Now, in Christianity, there are also four bodies, and they are called the carnal body, which, of course, is the flesh, then the natural body, which, of course, is the psychology, the spiritual body, and then the divine body. Other teachings use things like physical, astral, mental, and causal. But they all point to the same thing. There's a principle underlying it all. If you understand the principle, you can't possibly be confused with the different diagrams, with the different ways that it's taught, because they all come together. This is one of the biggest problems that people have. They get locked into one system and they can't see outside of that. They can't see that this system over here is the exact same system. It just has a different diagram. It just has a different figure. It's just choosing different words for the exact same thing. But when you get underneath that or behind that to the principle, then you can see how they are related. Then you can see what it's about. And then you have understanding, or then you have the potential for understanding or for creating the force of understanding inside of yourself. As we are, we don't have these other bodies or their abilities. We have a physical body. As we are, we have a psychological body, but it's not really a body because it's this chaotic, disorganized thing that can't really be called a body. It's a potential body. Let's say that. It's a potential. What happens is the physical body runs by external influences. So what makes the physical body operate is external influences. Now, the physical body then, because the second body is in this disarray and we really have no third or fourth body that we can speak of, the physical body, run by the external influences, runs all the functions of the other bodies that we would have, making us like brute beasts or balloon men. Just these figures, just these things that look like people have an image of a person. If somebody did a really good job on a balloon man and he stuck it over there and the lighting was just right, you might actually think it was a person. But the truth is it's not at all. It's just this balloon man or this machine. And so the first body is a machine, but that machine is activated by external influences. The following three functions depend on the physical. This is all wrong. The second body then is triggered by accidental shocks and influences. And what it is is a swirling mass of desires and aversions. 
Now, what you will recognize about yourself, if you observe yourself, and what you will recognize about, say, let's take your daughter, for example. When she wakes up today, she'll come out of the room, and the first words you'll hear is, I want, I want, I want, no matter what else. I want, I want, I want. That'll be sprinkled in there in some way. I want, I want, I want. That's exactly the chaos of the psychology of the second body. It's all about, I want, I like, I don't want. Give me, take that away. Give me this, take that away. The unfortunate thing is that you can live to the end of your life like that. You never have to develop. You never have to organize your second body in this life. Life will be happy to take you to the grave and never have you do anything about that, or hardly anything about that. You'll do enough to get by in life. Most people will do, most people will do enough to get by in life. But you know losers who won't. You know, losers who just will not make the effort, they're lunatics, they're tramps, or they're hostimus, they will not make the effort, and so they end up going another way. But most people will move toward being a good householder. They may not ever become a good householder, but they'll move in that direction so that they can function in life. We've talked about this in the past, so we really don't need to labor the point. Now, I want, I don't want, I like, I don't like, those things run the disorganized psychological body, the second body. The thinking of the third body is completely mechanical. Everyone goes around, oh, well, he's a great thinker. Well, this man thinks and that man... Blah, 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 blah. Everybody talks about thinking and nobody does it. What it is is just this association, this trigger, boom, 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 boom. One thing leads to another. There's very little directed thinking in the world, very little attention that's given, that's directed. Most attention is captured by something outside. But very few times are you ever going to find anyone who's worked hard enough to actually have some concentration to be able to direct their attention. We talked about this Wednesday night when we talked about the soul. It can access something higher, it can access something lower. But as we are, we access something lower and the soul is trapped there. But to set it free is to access something higher. Well, this is similar, pretty much the same thing, but it's just a different way of coming at it. And I come at it in different ways, as I've said before, because I think it's important for us to have different angles, different perspectives, so that we can start to fully know the principle, so that we can start to see its dimensions instead of just seeing it in this angle and then not being able to recognize it from that angle. For example, the whole idea of the four bodies, the physical, the astral, the mental, the causal, the carnal, the natural, the spiritual, the divine, the carriage, the horse, the driver, and the master, so all of those things can all be seen the same way if you walk all the way around the principle. You get over it, you get under it, and you examine it. You find that it has all of that in it. That is really working. There is no will in a man as he is. In place of will, what we have is desires and aversions. So if, for example, someone has strong desires, we will say they have a strong will. The truth is we're balloon men, empty inside, save for hot air. All these desires are just like hot air. They're blown here and blown there. There's no ballast in them. There's nothing that can give them any direction. They're just desires. And some people, if they have strong desires, then they have a little bit of direction there. They can move in that direction. Much the same way a cow can eat in a direction. It'll move in a direction by eating the grass that's in front of it and keep on moving, following that. I saw one time a, a man came to kill a cow that someone had raised. And how he did it was he brought a 22 rifle with him and he put some grass down in front of the cow and the cow, or some hay, and the, the cow ate that hay and walked right up to it and he had the rifle waiting there. The cow had his head down and 
walked up eating the grass and went and that was it the cow dropped over that's exactly what life does to us except that we don't think so we think we're smart we think we know where we're going just like the cow thought it knew where it was going and what it was doing the truth is it was just reacting and eating and that's what we're doing pretty much most of the time esoteric teaching aims at turning this whole thing around the mechanism of the first body influenced and dependent upon the other bodies how we are now is all the other bodies and their functions are stopped or misused by the physical body so what happens is the physical body is acted on by life it does whatever it does whatever life makes it do and then we end up with the I want I need I don't want I like I don't like that's the second body the third and the fourth there's nothing to talk about for us at this level there's nothing for us to talk about we need to get our psychological body handled before we can talk about the third body or the fourth body well we can talk about it but that's all we can do and I think it's even a little dangerous to talk about it so I, I'm just gonna give this a very light touch you know, working from consciousness, from will and real eye, there's an individuality rather than this multiplicity governing the physical body and its desires. What happens now is the physical body, acted upon by life, moves the psychological, stirs, that's a good word, stirs, stirs the psychological body, it stirs the hot air and gets these eddies and these different things flowing here and there, these currents going and these are desires and some go up and some go down but none of them go where we want them to go. It's like paper in a windstorm and that's what we're like. We're like paper in a windstorm with the psychological body just swirling around and doing this and doing that and it's all being stirred and cranked up by the physical body which is being activated by the external influences of life. There's nothing there. There's no will there. There's nothing that can stop that. There's nothing that can change that. We need to develop that. And that's where this work comes in. That's where esoteric teachings come in. This is the way to overcome the first body's resistance. The mechanical process of thinking is replaced by something that we call consciousness. Because there is will, a power, not a mob of contradictory eyes vying for dominance. The psychological body now is this mob of all these different eyes and they want this and they want that and they all have different wills so there's no will that can bring them together under one banner but when you have consciousness you start to bring them together under one banner you start to put them in their proper place you know that these little eyes are not capable of doing this so they go over there but these bigger eyes are capable of doing this so they go there and each one is given its job its task what it can do and what it does best and it's fine that way it's when it gets in the other seat that it really messes things up and that's when our lives go wonky. We cannot be said to have free will until we are independent of the accidental reactions to external influences. We don't have free will. Everybody wants free will. Nobody's got free will. It's insane to say that we have free will. There's nothing in this life that says, that shows us, that can prove to us, that can give any evidence that we have free will. Nothing. Because we can say, well, I do what I want. Yes, you do what you want, but what you want is not what you want. What you want is what some little I inside of you wants. And you want it now, but you don't want it the next moment. Or you want it now, and then you can't get it. So I want it, but you can't get it. Well, where's the will in that? Will means you can get it. Will means if you want it, you can get it. Will means you can want what you want, or you cannot want what you want. One of the things we've been dealing with in this whole diet thing is you've got to stop eating what you like. Practice eating what you don't like. Practice doing what you don't like to do. That is how you develop will.
If you go with line of least resistance, what do you develop? You're doing the same thing you've always done. No, but if you do something that you don't like, if you eat something that you don't like, then you're training yourself. You're training your psychological body. You're bringing order to it instead of this disorganized, chaotic mess, this mob rule that you have now. You're starting to have some, you're starting to develop this will that can say, Yes, all the eyes say, I don't like that, I don't want that. And there's something inside that can say, no, this is what we're doing. But I don't like that. doesn't matter. Nobody asked you what you like. It's not about that. It's about how to develop. It's about reaching your aim. It's about setting a course and staying with it. That is what this work is about. Not diagrams and figures and words and, oh, who knows it better and who can repeat it and who can parrot it. It's not about that. Unfortunately, people have made it about that, but it's not about that. And that's why it doesn't work for people, because they've made it about that. Unless, of course, working means, working for people just means that they get the accolades and approval of other people, and other people go, oh, he knows so much, oh, wow, oh, he's really a magician, oh, he's really wonderful. You know, if that's all you're after, if all you want is Phariseeism, you can get that anywhere. And if the work is your playground, then play. It's all the same to me, I don't care. We cannot be said to have free will until we are independent of, this, of the accidental reactions to external influence. It's just simple as that. Until we cannot be moved by these external influences, until we can say no to them and mean it and stick with it, we don't have free will. Only then can we set a course that cannot be altered from outside of our individuality, which has finally replaced the despotism of the false personality. The false personality is a monster. It's a despot. It makes Hitler and Stalin look like altar boys or kindergarten students. You know, it just makes them look like saints compared to what an incredible despot the false personality is. Only then can we be called a real man instead of a balloon man. Only then can we be called real men instead of balloon men. Only then can we say we have some substance rather than just hot air. Until then, it's all imagination. And we need to deal with that imagination in exactly the way that imagination needs to be dealt with. It needs to be seen for what it is. The only thing that will cut through imagination is the light of consciousness. The light of consciousness is the only thing that can dispel the drunkenness of imagination. The light of consciousness is the only thing that will sober you up and snap you out of it. And the light of consciousness has to be introduced into you, by you, through self-observation. That is the teaching of this work. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.